The Get Back Project, in January 1969, produced over 60 hours of film footage and more than 150 hours of audio recordings. Numerous editorial choices had to be made during the production of these films. Similarly, numerous editorial choices went into the making of these podcasts. Welcome to the When They Was Fab first look at Peter Jackson's The Beatles Get Back. Technical issues, combined with the hour of recording, resulted in the occasional subpar audio found within. This week's Wednesday was fab, a very special edition because, well, over here in the States, it's Thanksgiving weekend, and John Stone has more sense than I do. He's not up in what's effectively the middle of the night uh, to talk to you all about the three episodes of Peter Jackson's Get Back. Instead, well, we've invited a special guest, the host of Winter of Discontent, our friend from across the pond where it's a reasonable hour. Uh, yes. Hey. I had, may I just say, God bless the British police. I can't believe how um, easily thwarted they were. Well, I mean, you know, they weren't really going to actually arrest them on the roof, you know, pull them off, despite the fact that's what they really wanted. Yes. Yeah, by the Paul, sounds of it. Paul and Ringo would have been quite happy for them to just uh, uh, take carry them down the stairs. Maybe not quite so much goose stepping, but yeah, yeah, yeah I remember that from the anthology. Rigo saying uh, that that was the bit he was most disappointed about. You host a podcast entirely about the business of the Nagra reels. That's going to all change basically over these three nights. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did wonder if I was going to be um, uh, sort of usurped. <laughs> um, it's. It's extremely dense, though the the information that's in there. Yeah, there's there's so much to dig into. I, I think there's still plenty to work on, even even if you've got, you know, seven and was it seven and three quarter hours or something. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, we're we're kidding. we hit close to the eight hour mark, uh, and it doesn't. Well, at least for us, it doesn't drag. And there are pieces, particularly in the first episode, that might well be a little bit of a slog for people who are lesser fans. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. I thought the first the first one still had the feel of the Let It Be film in a way, didn't it? It was uh, the whole Twickenham setup is quite depressing, isn't it? Well, particularly you look at the first couple of days before they get those lights on. Those lights, just the fact that you've got these colored lights improve the environment considerably. I remember an interview with Ethan Russell where he was saying that was the intention was to start almost like if you've ever seen that um, Talking Heads film, Stop Making Sense, where they start with an empty stage and then they gradually build everything. It's that same kind of concept, isn't it, I think? Yeah, So, uh, except that the bare walls of Twickenham are just so depressing. And the fact that the walls themselves seem to be crumbling a little bit and decaying. Right. I mean, they, I didn't even realize they didn't have chairs when they first walk in, let alone anything else. <laughs> they just walk into um, to two amps and a drum kit. Starting with episode one, you see what is effectively a nine-minute anthology. Uh, I have some mixed feelings about how necessary that was. The, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, if you're uh, a serious fan, you're going to immediately be irked by the fact that it starts 1956 when we know they met in 1957 so that's strange so you're immediately getting off on the wrong foot there aren't you <laughs> um and i thought i don't know i think that was probably just uh bad maths from someone because we know john was 16 but he was 16 all the way through 1957 yeah you know right up to because his birthday's in october so you know um in july um he's he would still be 16 yeah no absolutely uh peter jackson seems to want to tell us that the real beginning of get back is the hey jude promo yeah um yeah i'm not it's there's there's many factors leading to it isn't there there's the rock and roll circus um you know i think hey jude uh, there's there's other things like um, playing your blues in the um, in the tape room, and that that idea of a kind of intimate kind of uh, playing live and then being sort of shoulder to shoulder. Um, so there's a yeah they took they started to get an interest during the White Album in playing together again, despite the narrative being that they worked on it everything separately. Um, they actually probably were more together than they were on Pepper. So, uh, yeah, I think that it was all leading to that, wasn't it? Uh, there's, there's not just one one event. Well, but there's never just one event, and that's the lesson that really we can take away from this whole series. You know, nothing is black and white. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, y- yeah sure, Yoko played a role in breaking up the Beatles, but for most of these eight hours... Yoko's just sort of sitting there. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I can't remember what, I've read some of the articles, it might even be that. There's a there's one critical Guardian article, um, and uh, I think they're of the view that she deserves a medal for sitting through it all, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, I've heard someone say that before about, you know, she's got a look about, I wish I'd brought a book. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, they come across well. I think I think Yoko and Linda come across very well in in that in that film. I I actually thought Linda was around more than she actually was. She, it, from the footage, it looks like she was there maybe three four days. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She may. She may. You know what? Well, I haven't. Uh, 
even got that far with it. But um, yeah, I would. I, th- I think it, are you, whether you consider that sort of um, retaliation from Paul, or whether you just whether it's just oh well, it's a sort of family event now, so we bring our families in because Maureen's there as well, and Patty makes an appearance as well, doesn't she? So, but I don't think that's unusual. They they talk about they didn't have tend to have guests, but but there's there's plenty of times when um, in the White Album you've got people like Twiggy turning up, haven't you, during um, Revolution, and you've got Jeff Lynn tells about actually dropping in on White Album sessions. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Well, we've had several monkeys turning up for sessions, haven't we? Um, and um, during, uh, isn't there foot, there's uh, photographs of when they're doing Lucy in, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and there's a there's a whole group of people sitting there watching them, yeah. including including Paul's dad. So it wasn't unusual for him to perform with a group of people around him. Although you look at what just the sheer number of people walking through Twickenham. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's strange. It's stranger people just stand there in shot, isn't it? That That's quite kind of odd. There'll be a sort of a, a technician or something leaning on a piano, just, just standing in the middle of the shot. Never occurs to them to get out of the way or anything. Now, through the Twickenham footage, I mean, you know, you've noted, and uh, when when I look at it, it's clear that there are probably more blank spots between the multiple cameras than Peter Jackson wants us to know. Yeah. There's reuse shots. quite a lot of reconstruction, isn't there? I think um, very little, particularly in the Twickenham section is very little lip sync, isn't there? Which, which was the problem with the Letty B film as well. Uh, um, and, and then there's the fact that, I was a, a, a fair bit worried when we first got that clip uh, out the other week where you have the uh, just that little snippet of conversation between uh, Paul, George, and John. It's like, that's three separate conversations, guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I looked at when we got to the 8th and the 9th, there's, they've used – there's a conversation I'm, – I'm into – um, the sixth on the podcast, and and there is that quite lengthy conversation about the staging of the show that that's um, quite famous for Yoko dominating it, and um, they use bits of that in the eighth and the ninth on the on the footage that they're using in this edit, which is which is a strange decision, I think. Well, um, he's telling a story. I mean, yeah, you know, that's what uh, that's one thing you see. Peter Jackson is a storyteller and he has actually put together a very good story here. And it yeah. does, it does hew more or less to the timelines and the way things are actually went. He's not sort of, unlike the trailer, he's not sort of drastically moving uh, quotes around in time. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, they, I mean, they've, they've obviously also gone for alternate, uh, alternate takes of things you already know. I noticed the, um, uh, I don't know what the, the businessman that complains that's caught in the Let It Be film, they actually give you sort of either side of his statement, don't they? They don't actually have his full statement about this music's okay in its place. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But basically he says, oh, for a start, it's too loud. That 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 we haven't had before. Um, they're using sort of alternative versions. I mean, there's tiny little bits from 
that I remember. I mean, even on the roof, they're just they they're creating an atmosphere of conversation and whatever as they're setting up. And there was a tiny bit of Paul saying, uh, "It's right-handed," which is from the 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 second when they first come in, and he's talking about his base. So that was strange that they dropped that in there. Yeah, but it's uh, it's a sort of montage of sounds, or or maybe they had little bits they wanted to use, and they you know they just dropped it in wherever they thought they could get away with it you know so that's why your podcast is still of tremendous value you know let's let's deconstruct where these things are uh, coming from oh yeah yeah although i would love for us to get the uh, as he calls it malized version of the whole 150 hours you know it's time it's time for an update to uh the a and b roles yeah there is i mean there's there's clearly stuff that's extra there isn't there i've I've noticed that i love the um the there is actually the test of the um console isn't there the um magic alex's console oh and that's that's very clearly glenn johnson and um alexis talking into the mic and that's that's fascinating and the fact that it seems to be george who was the one who was most behind alex building the studio it's strange, isn't it? Yeah, he's um, he's mo- much more involved with Apple than than you think. I mean, he he tends to he tends to get overlooked, but I think he was he was as as he did when he went to remaster the White Album in in the States. Um, he he took he was you know very on a technical level. I think he was very seriously involved, and I think um, the studio was probably his baby because it was his. Um, his eight track, we f- we find out. Um, qu- I'm not sure why they maybe they used his because it was calibrated, but they did have two others. Well, yeah, they, rather than rather than pulling one from EMI, uh, I think they just didn't. Uh, George just didn't charge for using his equipment. Although they still had to get the the two consoles well, from EMI. Yeah, well, well, I'll say I did a little bit of. Um, uh, it's in some of the discussions that that I've I've worked on, and they apparently had three. Um, they had two in Boston Place where Alex's lab was, um, and then they had um, George's console, and they were using the two um, four track mixers um, already at Twickenham. So that that equipment was already available. So it wasn't. It wasn't particularly difficult for him to to just continue using to do an eight track recording. The amount of of cable and um, uh, just the huge tape recorders and the battleship grain mixers that are enormous. It's it's amazing they achieved anything with that. It's just huge, um, quite primitive looking technology, isn't it? Yeah, no, recording technology. Well, and camera technology. It's also during part three when John pulls out that that little toy organ. It's like, and they're also amazed over it. Oh, the stylophone. Yeah, yeah, because it's so miniaturized, I suppose, isn't it? I mean, it's a hideous sounding thing, isn't it? But um, but yeah, it's, um, I mean, it was a gimmick, wasn't it? Because um, it's famously used on um, uh, David Bowie, isn't it? On Space Oddity. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, it was a novelty at the time. Did you see um, 
Alex's <laughs> reversible guitar and bass idea. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good grief. What, they're, what, very, they're very disparaging about him, aren't they? It's, uh, even, even early on, Glenn Johns is, is quite, uh, is scoffing at the idea that um, Alex will put wire all this together. And he went, oh, well, presumably. And well, I thought that was an interesting judgment straight away. But Alex was also apparently behind the design of the studio, and that's actually very good, well, other than the fact that he did not leave room to pull the cables through into the control. Well, he didn't put a patch bay in, did he? It didn't, that, yeah. that part, I think, hadn't um, occurred to him, how you get the lead from the mic to the mixer. Yeah. So and they have, to, they have to run it across the floor and through the door. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, but... I, you know, it's it's clearly it was very effective the way they the way they finally got it set up. So so back to Twickenham, uh, Peter Jackson is very delicate about John's heroin use, but he doesn't ignore it. No, no, I noticed that. The um, he's very that was interesting on the seventh. I hadn't noticed that before. Yoko isn't there first thing. She she seems to appear later on. Yeah. But first of all, John arrives, and he is quite spaced out, isn't he? Yeah, the the whole glassy eyes stare thing, and it's really cool to see the stuff around the two junkies interview. And John, yes. John knows that he was just completely spaced out for that whole interview. But by the you know by a couple hours later, when he's sitting there talking to him, it's like, oh well, I just went off and got sick. Isn't that funny? Yeah, he says, oh, I was just abusing my body. And Paul goes, do we need to do that on camera? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that was, that was uh, yeah. Um, that's just after the extremely awkward Peter Sellers um, uh, conversation, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I think Peter edited that maybe just a, a touch too closely, although that may have been for time. It, yeah, I mean, it kind of summarizes it. They were... That all they did was trade sort of non sequiturs, didn't they? They didn't. Um, that was that's the absence of George. George was much more personable, wasn't he? If you can you can hear him on the tapes, he's always very, uh, "How are you? How's how's the wife?" You know. Yeah, uh, he's he's just a much more uh, kind of open and um, and friendly kind of character, which is which is not his image. Um, but yeah, the, John doesn't know how to approach Peter Sellers at all. They ju- they just try and trade quips. Well, but that's what John does through through this whole thing. Once he gets out of his uh, heroin haze, I mean, John is just so funny. I mean, we knew what a funny guy John was, funny in any number of senses. But mm. uh, you know. From what he does here, particularly on the days in Apple, you know he could have he could have gone up against Lenny Bruce, or he could have gone up against Robin Williams. You yeah, know? his improvisational stuff is 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 it's unique, isn't it? I I can't think of a a similar or what a contemporary kind of uh, a comparison there is to that really surreal kind of humor that he's doing in the wordplay. I mean, it is all a bit of its time, but he's also like, what a unique personality. A little bit of Stephen Wright, I think. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there, there's a sort of British tradition, sort of Spike Milligan, Stanley Unwin kind of thing. But it's it, he's, he's on a different level. So uh, what else? There's the lunchroom 
conversation. The, yeah. the, the way they managed to clean that up. Yeah, yeah. You can hear them. You can hear where they lift. Uh, they've used the AI to lift out um, vocals. You can hear they're quite um, process sounding, aren't they? There's a listenable subtitle copy available on the net that John pointed me out. You know, on YouTube, and mm-hmm. this is a step beyond that. But yeah. I mean, the, the technology, even amongst the amateurs, the technology is out there. Oh, absolutely. I've, I've heard. Um, and they should they should really um you know um apple should should look at some of the amateur amateur work that, that goes on because some of the restoration of things like uh, the bbc um tapes is actually way in advance now of um of of what what was released but uh, yeah with this with the conversation that that is interesting because it's it's clear what the issue is with george and they realize it Oh yeah, no, John and Paul both do. You know, yeah, he's not a session. He's not a session player. He's an art, he's an artist in his own right. And um, for Paul to keep trying to stop him to play makes him think, "Well, oh, why did I come in?" Which is then ironic uh, when just a couple of weeks later, it's like, "Oh, well, we want Billy. We don't want to pay him at the session rate. That's why we want him to join the band." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Same opposite, thing, opposite thing entirely. Although, but yeah, I mean that may be jumping ahead, but but Billy is so impressive, isn't he? He's he's, um, he's music is just flows through him, doesn't it? It's it's in his blood. The fact that he can, yeah. the Paul goes, oh, can you copy what we're singing on the harmony? And he just does it. They play the songs through not even one full time, and I mean, you know, again, that's where the Nagras come in handy because, well, Peter Jackson is condensing things because he has to. Yeah, he condenses six takes into one. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's for for entertainment. It, how do how do you feel about that? Does it um, satisfy everybody? Do you think, as a a casual viewer, um, you're gonna? I mean, the second episode is nearly three hours. Are you gonna are you gonna put yourself through that necessarily? It, but you can't cut it. You know, uh, I've been talking mm. to my musician friends. And they were all, you know, give me more of this. Give me more of this. That whole 30 or 40 minutes where they're just going through Get Back, that is fascinating. Let's move the chorus around. Let's, let's move the verse around. We want two solos. Well, if we're going to do two solos, what goes here and what goes there? And, you know, and for the most part, it's just them talking and playing. I understood the having recently, I'm, I'm having to make a two-parter out of when they, um, initially settled on the arrangement for don't let me down and that that's the the lengthy um session that pre that precedes the argument that happens on the sixth um and you can actually see when john says oh we, we were just too tired it's not physically tired it's the the level of concentration it takes because you're you're not learning this song you're making it you're creating it from nothing so you know you're focus so much on on in, your input of ideas and developing understanding what works and trying things and going over and over and it takes an awful lot of focus and it, it's actually i think it is very mentally tiring so um yeah the whole the whole effort with uh with get back and uh, that level of detail it was the same thing to don't let me down that's that's what sets them apart is is they know it needs complete uh, arrangement like a like a classical piece almost you know every instrument has to have a purpose 
Yeah, I mean, there's all of that. And then you look at the other side, you know, there's Paul on day four is plucking this thing out of the air. And, you yes. know, it's not the complete song, but it's enough of the song. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, where does, where does those, he's, within seconds, his mumbled words become, but he knew it wouldn't last. It just comes out, doesn't it? It's like, and those are just syllables he's put together, but it, it, it emerges like, I, I, and that's that's extraordinary. But he is um, someone described him as uh, the, the, the people see him as as bossy or picky. But you should now. I think it it may you view this. It does change your opinion of Paul. He's he's very gifted. He's as someone described him as a savant. You know that he can be bossy. I mean, you you still see that here. He that's because he yeah. But the, and it's kind of like where they say with that conversation. Well, you, you know, I've let you take songs where I don't want them to go. But you have to have to face reality. Was he's been by and large, he's been right, hasn't he? Well, you know, it's, the, it's the come and get it thing. You know, Badfinger have over the years said, you know, well, I resented that a little bit, but Paul was right. Exactly, exactly. You know, he's he's more or less taken control of the arrangements from even even actually in fine detail. You can hear him um, dictating the drum part for "I Want to Hold Your Hand," so it goes back a long way. But when they started to move from George Martin having that role, um, his drive and his his focus, and he he, he would sort of he seemed to be able to visualize the whole performance. John abdicates his responsibility in that that sense for a while, doesn't he? And um, and Paul ends up just dictating to everybody. But John John could be every bit Paul's equal in expressing the what's in his head, although he could never tell anybody. He, you know, but he got it there eventually. So yeah, 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 absolutely. Although I, I, yeah, I did wonder. I think the main one he. He's got in mind when he, when John talks about something that didn't go the way he wanted it to, he's still thinking about across the universe, isn't he? Well, that was real funny to see them pull out the record and start by playing the record in the studio. Yeah, yeah, you said it's apparently a unique mix, isn't it? I think that. I think, but you obviously don't hear it properly. But um, well, you know, you, you don't have the birds there for one thing. Mm, yeah, but I think it's it's because it's mono and it was never released in mono, so it's um. They move on very quickly, don't they? And they don't tend to be able to remember their own songs. I think that when they produce album tracks and singles, they just move on. It's forgotten about once it's done. Although they still did manage to to make reasonable versions of you know how many of their songs just you know help and Strawberry Fields and Please Please Me and Love Me Do and you know the, while they're not up to finished quality with just a little bit of a refresher, they could have mm. played any one of those live. Yeah, it's, it's strange. It's very much their man- mentality, isn't it, that they didn't want to go back over old stuff. Although their only point of reference all the way through is Hamburg, isn't it? Or Leicester de Montford Hall. They mentioned that quite a lot as well. Yeah, um, once, they, <laughs> once they broke out into the, the theatre circuit, live was dead to them. Yeah. Yeah, I, yes, I think they never considered themselves a live band after that, did they? I think prob- that's probably where it comes from. Paul says, we sound like a couple of old people. Oh, do you remember back in the day when we used to... <laughs> Although I love that rock and roll music montage, them playing it juxtaposed with the, 
the Budokan footage, the, the white suit Budokan footage, which Peter Jackson did an amazing job on that too. You know, yeah. you've never seen that look so good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it was a, that was a, an unusual, I mean, it's obviously for, for sort of uh, a variety to sort of lift you out of staring at the same same kind of atmosphere the whole time but it, yeah it's very, it's kind of jarring a little bit the way that 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 comes out with the sort of the screams over the top and the crowd noise it's kind of the the same thing that mccartney did with the three two one you know to get you out of this black and white space yeah yeah so, it, need, it needs it every now and again um but it is uh yeah i'm, I'm not complaining about anything it the the object of of this documentary is to tell the, tell the story as a uh, summarized somewhat, despite the fact that, but it is a, it is a fantastic story, isn't it? It's um, a band setting themselves a challenge. It has all the, the right dramatic beats in it. You know, that they have a end of the first act. So they have a drama. There's a couple of, couple of moments there, isn't there though, with when, when, um, when George walks out, when they're going home and there's a little group hug. I mean, as close as you can get, people weren't that touchy-feely back then. But there's there's a real bond between those three guys that, that it's really evident at that point. Well, and then, then John uh, John and Ringo walking out, uh, you know, arm in arm, and that, that's all. Yeah. Uh, it, it, what it reminds me of is uh, in, in the Real Love video, you see Paul going in for a, for a hug with George. Yeah, during the Threedle sessions, it's like, yeah, you know, these guys. We always metaphorically call them brothers, but they really were. It feels that way, definitely. And as all families, the argument, the big centerpiece of "Let It Be," just doesn't come off as anything that's all that major here. No, if anything, it's Paul wanting (laughs) wanting some buy-in, isn't it? I'm more on Paul's side with it this time because George is is spinning what he's saying. He's that's that's why he's going. I won't play at all, you know, and all of that. But but Paul is saying, I don't want to be the boss. You come up with something, <laughs> and then George is kind of saying oh, back to him, Well, have you got your bass part worked out yet? As if to throw it in his face. Well, you know, I'm working my part out. Why, you know, what what are you doing? Um, but that's not what he's talking about. The footage in the next morning, you can tell George came in pissed off at something. He and Patty had probably had an argument. I mean, we know what was going on. Was Well, was Patty still there, or had George moved her out? And it, We don't know for certain, but what you read about is that um, it comes from Patty's book, largely, that, that George moved in um, Eric Clapton's former girlfriend, Charlotte Martin, with the hopes of getting something going with the two of them. And um, Patty wasn't having any of that, and and she supposedly walked out or moved moved out of the home on fourth, um, which is the Saturday, and didn't return till the tenth, which is when George had already walked out. That casts a big black cloud over him over that whole week. By that evening, George was was in no mood for anybody's uh, bullshit. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Totally. I mean, even before, just before that argument, if we spend, well, I've, I've edited most of the music out of the discussions on, on Don't Let Me Down, and it's still an hour. So um, the, when we get to the end of it, and I've spent so long trying to work out a backing vocal for the middle section, 
And Paul finally just says, well, that's it, I give up. And you see that in the film now. And George does say to him, if you could hear this back, you'd throw that away, straight away. <laughs> and he finally sort of stands up to him, having, having tolerated it for as long as he had. Because he's generally he's right, but sometimes I think Paul can make um, a lapse of good taste and then he can't be shaken from it. And that was probably what happened with uh, Maxwell as well, wasn't it, in the, in the future? And that also kind of puts that in a new light. Uh, you know, maybe it wasn't just the fact that Paul had them do it and do it and do it for Abbey Road. It's like, we've been doing this since January. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there were, again, because he's very single-minded, I think there were, from the, the early run-throughs of that, there's other ways it could have gone. And it could have been a bit more kind of satirical. It becomes a bit treacly. Um, and maybe it, maybe it needed to be, it could have been good for the show as a bit of sort of light entertainment. It's another song that would have fit. I mean, you know, that's part of the problem is really once Long and Winding Road and Let It Be start coming into the picture, it's like, well, these aren't going to work on the roof. Or no, you know, no. in, in a live setting, it would have been much more difficult. You know, they could have done I Want You Live easily. Yes, that was it. That was uh, very interesting. And um, For You Blue would probably have worked up there as well, you know. So, or they, I think they almost, don't they? I know we've jumped ahead a bit, but they almost do um, Old Brown Shoe on the roof by the sound of it. So It's on the list. So George walks out. The very end of part one is, you know, what's going to happen? Mm. It's, and again, even though we know it's a very effective cliffhanger. It is, and and yeah, as I say, it ends. It's quite moving. It ends with the remaining three, and they just have a moment, don't they? You don't know what was said, but they, you know, John goes right up into in between um, Paul and Ringo, and they kind of just hold on to each other for a second. And um, I don't know what kind of reassurance there was, or whether he was, you know, he was taking a leadership role for once. But it's all in Paul's eyes, the way he's looking into the camera. That starts um, part two, doesn't it? He can't actually get that out. He almost falters when he says, because um, John, John isn't answering the phone. And he just goes, well, and, and then there were two, and he nearly goes. You can hear his voice go, and, and, and the camera lingers on him, because that's one of the two cameramen there was so on the money, he didn't, he didn't um, flinch from that, and that's... Uh, that's an amazing bit of cinema, that little moment, isn't it? Well, and then unfortunately where we are 52 years later, yeah, mm. there, there are two of them. That's what makes it heartbreaking, yeah, because that, that, is, that is where they are now. So, so many people have left us. It's, it's terrible, really. Half the crew of the film is no longer with us. I mean, yeah. you know, the people that go through it, you know, we, we got to be glad for the folks that are still with us, you know, between other than Paul and Ringo, you know, we got we got Mike McCartney who shows up there at the end. We got mm. Lindsay Hogg. There, there's some of them, but all too soon. Because we've just got to the sad bit in the in the uh, in the three parts, the end the end of Act One with the uh, you know the crisis, um, and it's put us in a in a bleak mood. Let's it, uh, let's lift it up a bit. It had always seemed to me that the two meetings kind of built on each other. You know, it's interesting that you have. Peter Jackson telling us, oh, the first meeting just went terribly. And then George went off to Liverpool and then everything got better once he got back. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, 
you know, the impression I always had was, okay, they went and talked to him and, and George set out some conditions and then it's like, well, okay, let's meet again when we can. And then it is strange because if you look at, if anyone hasn't seen that, they may be parted the blog that's, that's going through these, the Nagra tapes as well. That mentions that on the Saturday, which is the 11th after George has walked out, John and Yoko come for breakfast. So, in a, I don't know, is it in a, in a sort of um, friendship that really hasn't changed. It's in, the, it's in their kind of working arrangements that they, they have their problems. That see you around the clubs. It's like, you know, yeah. we're, we're not going to not see each other anymore. And, we're, we're, and he really even had no objections to them working together. It's just like, I've had enough of the Beatles for right now. Yeah, I think that that kind of sums it up. He doesn't he doesn't have any in malice necessarily towards towards anyone else. He just doesn't think it's workable. And I think part of why you know it had to end in the end is because George outgrew them. You know, um, I mean, he's bringing in some uh, fantastic material every day, isn't he? The fact that it just comes off the top of his head now you may not see him constructing it in the studio the, that little bit about well i was watching this on tv and then at the end of this movie there's there's a waltz and three four time and then that inspired me to write i me mine it's like yeah yeah i'd never heard that before and they, and they show the the actual program that he was watching which is is amazing enough that those kind of things still exist isn't it but that whole idea that he was Initially, I think he was singing along to the the waltz that was on the movie, and then he then he carried on. And he, uh, later on, he says something about that. I've, I always follow what you said to me about ten years ago. He says to John, "You know, if you've got an idea, you got to you got to finish." He says that he stayed up late into the night. John is very uh, very disparaging about that song, though, isn't he? He doesn't. He, he's not polite about it at all. He's gone. Oh, should I get the hurdy gurdy out? He's uh, he's not into that idea at all, and then he doesn't play on it either. I was surprised to that the suggestion that John and Yoko waltz was George's idea. Yeah, he said, "Oh, do that in the show. We could have a different thing for each." Each, which is an idea. I mean, it, they were looking for ideas for for their show. Maybe they could have had a, a different setting for each each song. I mean, at one point he wanted to do "Hear Me, Lord," and have the Staples Singers, and just do that on his own. So, you know, they weren't, they weren't short of ideas. They just didn't seem to get picked up. Well, I mean... But then I think everyone was in tunnel vision. I mean, they don't really shift probably up until they finally decide on the roof. We get Paul waffling that whole day, the whole two or three days before, you know, even though they'd already started construction on the roof. Yeah, he's still not the big finale. They never, they never get there, but they never... Oh, you can't shift Michael from um, the amphitheatre. He's, he's got that in his head. Picture is there, isn't it? Um, and it's a beautiful place. It would have been spectacular. But, no, you know, no one wants to go. I did find the QE2 an uh, amusing idea, well, particularly because we get the QE2 in Magic Christian a year later. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. He's, uh, he doesn't have a problem... But then again, I think that's very much like George was saying, you know, he said, oh, well, let's do the thing and then I'll go there, you know, rather than work while I'm out there. And that's that's very similar. I think Magic Christian, they do the promotional thing is on the QE2. It isn't the uh, film. The John and Yoko shot is of them boarding the QE2. I think that those were stolen shots. 
yeah. right before you see the the bit with Raquel Welch uh, and uh, her her topless friends. Oh, oh yeah, good grief! Yeah, yeah, I did. I did subject myself to that film actually um, not so long ago. Um, so, so part two, and really even before Billy shows up, everything kind of changes once they get down into the basement. Yes. Yeah, I mean, even when they walk in, it's like, well, this is a much nicer environment. But it, it takes them a while to get set up, which I didn't realise that was happening. They weren't they weren't ready to go the minute they walked in. Yeah, well, I mean... Um, Glenn had to try and set them up, and they had... You can see him mo- looking worried and moving speakers around and all sorts of things, didn't he? He's got a very telling... I mean, we've all experienced it, I'm sure. He's got a very telling black fingernail, Glenn Johns, all the way through that um, second half of <laughs> Um, and he's clearly from moving um, consoles and stuff around, isn't he? He's, um, he's shut his fingers between two heavy heavy objects. He was obviously very hands-on putting that together. It's amusing to me, you know, the first day they walk in, it's all clean and freshly painted in the carpet. Oh, yeah. All, you, know, you know, just brand new. Within two days, it's, it's a pigsty. If you've ever seen some of the – there's lots of photos about of Abbey Road, obviously, in that but um the rugs that they work on are absolutely disgusting <laughs> um and it's just because you know they stamp out cigarettes i mean there's signs up isn't there please use the ashtrays <laughs> i think a lot of the time people don't seem to bother and uh, yeah it gets filthy very quickly there's a picture in the get back book of uh, the anvil filled with cigarette butts and yes a, this is an anvil yes <laughs> and everyone's stubbing out their cigarettes on it yeah, um, my one of my favourite parts on there was was Ringo attempting to put together a music stand. I thought that was brilliant um, because I've I don't know if if you've tried that yourself, but those um, collapsible stands are just it's just like a puzzle. It, it's <laughs> I, I wouldn't remember now how you actually make them square, but he ends up with these in the kind of triangle shape, doesn't he? It never works. Yes, it, yeah, well, there's no instructions with it, and it's just not intuitive at all the way that it comes together. And he's he's obviously trying to force it into a shape, but and then he's then he shoves his piece of paper in it. <laughs> that would do. Billy then shows up, and we and they get the Billy story right. You know, it's none of this. Oh, he was with Ray Charles. Oh, he was around. Uh, you know, the only yeah that one that one is yeah, extraordinary, isn't it? That that's become. It's kind of, I think, I don't know where, where it originally came from. It might have been um, Philip sure. Norman. Well, it may be Philip Norman, but George likes to tell that story. Um, yeah. You know, and, well, I, and, and I think he even believed it for the last 15 years of his life. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, he saw Ray Charles in the summer. That's what he's talking about. Yeah, he saw Ray Charles with Billy Preston in the summer. Billy Preston is working solo after, after that. And he's looking to launch himself because he plays um, uh, an in-concert show, doesn't he? And then he's on the Lulu show. There's a clip of Billy with uh, Ray Charles that's going around where he does Double O Soul. That is just so cool. Yes, isn't he? What, what a, yeah, he, he, just, he just oozes coolness, doesn't he? Um, nothing is real said that. He's just the coolest man on the planet when he walks in and he's just like so natural. <laughs> And um, yeah, they're automatically it, it, he's the glue, isn't he? You can you can see that. It, well, even John says you well you made made a sound better, <laughs> you know. Um, and it's yeah, he, he's so complimentary with them. I mean, what what he does with um, 
I've got a feeling, or even get back the fact that those crescendos, those um, the, the soul feel to yeah, the fact that he enhances the George's guitar there, it just thickens that sound. His, his note choices make that sound like an enormous thing, and it's just literally that guitar and the keyboard. Now it may not have been better or worse. But what if it had been Nicky Hopkins? What if Nicky Hopkins had been around and, and and had come into the session? The album would certainly be sounding much different. Yeah, I think. I mean, Nicky Hopkins obviously was, you know, he was with the Who. He played with the Stones. He played with the Kinks. He was on so many different um, recordings. But I mean, he tends to have. He tends to be one style. I think uh, Billy Preston was a much more sympathetic musician. I mean, he plays, Nicky Hopkins plays a kind of barrel house style, doesn't he? And he's, he's playing the same thing really with the Stones on Sympathy for the Devil as he is with on Revolution. It's that same kind of style. Yeah, but um, then you look at what he plays on Imagine later. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, maybe, maybe then it's, I just, I, there's a, there's an essence to what Billy's doing and how, how he's feeling it. Cause he's, he's, in, he's kind of weaving his way into George's guitar parts a lot of the time. And that's why I was thinking with, um, I've got a feeling when um, George is playing in between the, he plays a little guitar part in between the lines in the verses, doesn't he? And, and Billy's just, linked with that as if they're one instrument um yeah that's that's just that kind of empathy i think was a, a extraordinary well i mean we can't change history had no. nicky hopkins you know we might be saying oh well no one else could have done what nicky did on the- no absolutely yeah, yeah you're right i mean i mean fundamentally where what they needed was an extra extra instrument and the, and they're aware of that quite early on they were either going to get the keyboard player or another bass player. And that's when they start talking about, well, maybe we could have one of those guitars and basses all in one. <laughs> and then Paul says, why don't we get two and then we can just like switch. We'll, we'll leave that to Denny Lane. <laughs> yeah. King Sierra. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or uh, Mike Rutherford. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, part two is, I would call that the musicians section of, this film, you know, we get a couple songs. We notably let it be and get back where, as we discussed earlier, we really sort of get the construction of those songs. You know, part one, we kind of see, okay, well, here's where the general idea uh, came from. Although, you know, with let it be, it's really amazing. Now that we have all the way back to Paul's improvisation uh, during the gently weep session. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite different, isn't it? It's, I always find that interesting. John does that quite a lot, though. You'll find demos where he's got the idea, and that's a very John, it's almost a very John kind of idea of that, where he sings Let It Be, and these chords are completely different, aren't they? Yeah. His structure, his structure is the same, but his tune is different, and, and, his, and his chords are different. And, and John tended to do that. He kind of forces lyrics into a shape you know and that's that seems to be what 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 paul has done there um and then we get the session we get the session in part one where ringo says you know an hour of paul doing that i'd I'd be happy with that as the film yeah i I think that's the bit that that michael lindsey hawk is missing they were enough 
you know, they didn't need a, a dramatic backdrop. And that's kind of what Yoko was saying as well. They didn't even need an audience, which I think that, that was probably a wrong move. But in terms of would we want to see them? I mean, we've just sat through eight hours of them. Yes, we do. There's a, a, a magic of those four individuals when they're working together that is enough, isn't it? You know, you could sit there and watch it. Stick around for part two, which will be followed shortly thereafter by our usual deep dive with John, myself, and some special guests. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. together in the back. I know, but can you see each other inside when you're in the bag? Yes, yeah. it's, it's just like being under the sheets, yes, you know. Yes, sort of Only the white bag where you, she that's generally like... used to use black bags where you could see out, so you could see what, but we couldn't see a thing, you just did. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.